we live in the blues era. There might have been a classical era and a romantic era or the Baroque era. We've been living in the blues era since Jerry, Jelly Roll Martin published Jelly Roll Blues. On Soul Country Podcast number three, I sat down with Chris Thomas King, a Grammy-winning musician, film actor, and songwriter, now author of The Blues, the authentic narrative of my music and culture. We talked about the book, his career, and the history of Louisiana blues and its Creole origins. I'm Rick Stewart, a community radio DJ and award-winning filmmaker, now podcasting to get deeper into soul country. Tales from the intersection of Americana and R&B. Listen in as we revitalize our cultural roots in westerns, blues, and variety. And now, a word from our sponsor. Ace Production produces Soul Country for the Blues Center. Ace offers consulting and video production, YouTube channels, digital strategy, and team building for companies large and small. To ace your production, access acedust.com. Chris joined me during a mid-jazz fest week in New Orleans uptown in a hastily constructed studio, and we opened up a no-holds-barred conversation on the music, culture, and business of blues. The Authentic Narrative of My Music and Culture by Chris Thomas King. Quote, Yet our greatest invention, the blues, has been anglicized and stripped of its Creole meaning and cultural significance. The Louisiana Creole term, or blues, or bleu, the original name the originators gave their musical invention in songs such as Jelly Roll Blues, Buddy Bolden's Blues, etc., celebrated subversion, discordance, and freedom from freedom of expression among blacks in Louisiana whose preordained underclass status constitutionally liberated them socially and musically. Blues mocked Victorian prudishness. It was a humanizing force that threatened to normalize black sensuality. So that opened up a few different avenues that you go into in depth in the book, but um, could you situate our audience members a little bit on what you're getting into there? Yeah. Uh, first, I'll give everybody a, a definition. Uh, we all speak, you know, the King's English here in America, so that's our first language. And uh, so when we hear the word blues, we think in that definition, the English definition, sad, depressed, melancholy, that type of thing. But in New Orleans, uh, it's important for everybody to, to, to understand that the the black community, the black newspapers and things, they, they, they were printed in French. And the first history of New Orleans um, black community was written by Rudolph Desdunes, was written in French. And so Mamie Desdunes, uh, that was her father. So in other words, Jelly Roll parents, you know, they spoke French, so or, or Creolized French. And so the word blues, as it, when it comes to New Orleans and its, and its origins, is taken from the old French blaspheme, sacre deal, or sacre blue. And if you just creolize that and just add a little, you know, do a, a slang of sacre blue, then you get the word blues. Like, we don't want, we're a respectable junk, we don't want any blues. To put it in context, uh, for a long time you had blue laws, and, and a lot of places still have blue laws. You know, these moral codes or religious codes where you can't gamble on a Sunday or you can't have a ball or a festival or play music and that, but that's what that's what that's what we did in Louisiana, you know, from its beginning, you know, on places like Congo Square and just they used to call them balls, but really they were festivals. We'd have festivals every day of the week, just like we do now. Yeah, nothing's really changed. Yeah. yeah. So blue laws is uh is like the the Anglo-Saxon Protestant trying to impose their you know um, rigid. Uh, prudish Victorian mores on Louisiana uh, let the good times roll kind of culture 
and the blues kind of came out of that pushback against it. Because Louisiana, you know, for people that just remind people, you know, it's more of a Catholic thing and the Catholic and the Protestant situation was very tense, you know, for many, many years in America. Right now, it doesn't seem like a big deal. The Spanish who controlled Louisiana for, for almost a longer time than the French, the Spanish, um, you know, were pretty relaxed about uh, the, expressive, the expressiveness of this black community, the free people and the enslaved. And um, so uh, Louisiana just developed very differently from the British colonies like Virginia, the Carolinas and places like that. You know, we were more uh, a Spanish territory, you know, for the first hundred or so years of our development. And so we developed differently and the drum was never banned here. So uh, even today, I think that New Orleans and South Louisiana is it, it still has a more Africanized, you know, cultural spirit than any other place in the United States. And as it comes to blues, I mean, I, I started off trying to give a definition, but the definition in French, when you say something is blue, it means that it is uh, shocking or wholly blasphemous. Yes, yes blasphemous, yeah. or is risque or too sex, too sexy. You know, like Bourbon Street, or say like on uh, the Moulin Rouge, or. You know, or, or, or Dave Chappelle might be a blue comic. You know, you might consider him a blue comic, that type of thing. Richard Pryor, you know, was considered a blue comic. Lenny Bruce. And a lot of these people were very close to the jazz and blues world, too. Like, they might have tried to cut their own songs singing. You know, they, were, they felt it. You know? <laughs> That's right. And, uh, yeah, I think... Richard... And Red Fox is another one who had a yeah. bit going on with the music. So if it, was, if it was a little too risque, and, you know, for polite society, you know, it was considered blue entertainment or off-color. And so... The word blues is more of a, is more subversive definition in the French language. So when Jelly Roll Martin in 1915 published Jelly Roll Blues, it's a subversive message. He's not trying to tell the world that he's sad and depressed and, and down in the dumps. He's telling people that, you know, after midnight, you know, we're gonna let it all hang out. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is this this was a raunchy, you know, um, late night, slow dragging or whatever, you know, kind of music. Whereas um, before the blues came along, people, the, even the black musicians and stuff, they would play a scottishay or they would play a waltz or they would play whatever the dance was for the, for the occasion. They would play certain dances that people have practiced these dances and they're gonna dance them. And women would show up to the bars, you know, if when women began to show up in the early 1900s, because before that they did not, but young girls will come to these places with corsets on and stuff. But at a blues concert, at a blues venue, they would have a corset closet. So they'll take the court, they'll leave home, their mom and dad will see them leave home with the corset. Mm -hmm. But then they'll throw it yank it's throw the that literal in. version of let it all hang out. Yeah, throw that yeah. in the closet and let it all hang out, you know, at the at the at the at the, at the jam. So I use the old term uh, that we don't use as much anymore, Anglo-Saxon. And the reason I use Anglo-Saxon to talk about Louisiana culture. Because Louisiana culture is so complex, and if you if if I use dialogue like white and black, and not use some of the older terms like Anglo-Saxon or Negro, or whatever or Creole, which we don't use much anymore, the blues was born in Louisiana in the 1890s, and so uh, when the blues began to take shape here, Italians lived and worked side by side with with with, with blacks mm -hmm. in Louisiana. They weren't yet they were not yet um, white. Are mm -hmm. considered first-class citizens, and um, 
So they had access to this music and they had access to the people and the culture because they all lived and worked together in menial jobs and, and things like this. And, uh, and that's how some of the early Italian musicians uh, were able to take part in music, hear the music, because it wasn't on record. You had to be in the place to hear it. So Italians had access to black music, black culture, because they worked side by side and they, and, and they weren't yet assimilated into whiteness in America at the turn of the uh, 19th century. And, and so a lot of these musicians would hear these bands like King Oliver, you know, Kidori and them play the blues uh, in the parks and, and some of the venues and stuff like that. And they, you know, made their version of that sound. And whereas King Oliver and these bands would call themselves the Creole band, these are all black bands call themselves the Creole. And I don't mean like mixed race, it's not a mixed race issue. But um, so the King Oliver Creole band, which Louis Armstrong ended up being a part of, uh, the, Dixie, the Dixieland Jazz Band, Blues Band was uh, modeled after that band and after that, that type of sound. But then instead of calling themselves a Creole band, which they you know rejected because that was considered black, they called themselves Dixieland, you know, the Dixieland boys, you know, to align themselves with, with Civil War um, nostalgia for the Old South and for Dixie. And so they use that as a culture. It's like, in other words, and it also helped with their marketing of their record because in 1917, white families didn't want to bring, they liked black music, but they weren't going to bring that black music into their homes. So having a Dixieland jazz band play this, this style of music that the nation was starting to take a, a liking to, uh, and they didn't wear blackface when they did it, uh, by calling themselves Dixie, the Dixieland Boys, uh, original Dixieland band, they they aligned them. They were Italian, but they aligned themselves with Anglo-Saxon Protestantism, and kind of passed and made it acceptable in white homes. And that's when this um, blues sound began to explode across the nation. You know, and, and in the, and in the mid twenties, uh, well, it was it was there was what you could call a blues craze. I wanted to bring up the little factoid that the first blues song published by a lot of people view it to be Antonio Maggio here in New Orleans, the Italian guy who was writing it down long before WC or, you know, half a dozen years before WC Andy. That's right. So in your book, one of the key things you do is connect the earliest mentions of the blues and talk about New Orleans, but that's decades before the popularly accepted myth that the blues were really from Mississippi Delta. So that was subsequent history. Yeah, uh, nobody thought of the blues coming from the Mississippi Delta in the 1920s, including W.C. Handy. Uh, it wasn't even, uh, it, because it just didn't, you know. Um, there were no people, uh, at least no black people in the Mississippi Delta until around the turn of the 19th century. Uh, all through slavery, there were never any black, people like to say that the blues came from slavery and from work songs and things like this. And then they try to associate it with the Mississippi Delta because the Mississippi Delta is impoverished. It's kind of like uh, they want to make that equivalent of an equivalency between that and Appalachia. One of those performers from that era was one that you got to play in a movie. I wanted to get into the Tommy Johnson story. Did you do what kind of preparation did it take to take that on? Well, I used people that I knew personally, like uh, people I'd grown up playing with, like Guitar Kelly, 
I used his mannerisms and things to, to, to model on. Because Tommy Johnson, there's no video of him. There's no, I've never heard an interview of his speaking voice, anything. And plus it was a fictional movie. I mean, Old Brother War Thou mm -hmm. is just a, a send up, you know, it's a, it's a farce, you know. Uh, one Eye Cyclops and all this kind of stuff. So it was a fun project that was just kind of spoofing, you know, a lot of superstition and stuff, you know, about the Old South and about, and about Mississippi and the Delta. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was a wonderful opportunity to play uh, Tommy Johnson. But when I, uh, I had just moved back to America from Europe, I had been living in Europe for some years, and I had just moved back to New Orleans uh, and settled here before I got the part. What do you think it was that that one project became such a hot thing? I have no idea. <laughs> so nothing's come obvious out of I think that. <laughs> if I knew that, <laughs> I don't know if we'd be sitting here today. I'd be, uh, you know, everybody would be lined up, you know, to have me read their fortune or something. I mean, I have no idea why the thing was a was a huge commercial success. I mean, I knew it was a success creatively and as a piece of art, you know, the movie, the score, the whole project, you know, was just these people, they know how to make movies, the cinematographer, the way the movie looked, the way T-Bone captured the sound, you know, um, all of that was, you know, we knew we were, they were making a, a, a first-class film. It wasn't a B-movie or anything like that. But the, how the public reacted to it, I mean, that kind of music had never had that kind of success ever. And it changed, I think it influenced a lot of young people. A lot of young people, that they, they were young then, they're not so young now. But a lot of them got introduced to the blues for the first time through my character, you know, through, through me playing Tommy Johnson and, 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 and the Hard Time Killing Floor Blues um, version that I do of, of Skip James in the film. But uh, that success was it, it was, it was phenomenal, and it's still ongoing. I mean, it's still, you know, it's, that was what- 20, And you did, you did some concert ago. performances too, right? With the, some of that gang? Yeah, we were, we, were, we were in demand. I mean, we had to go out and um, we played Carnegie, and, uh, and, and as a co-headliner, as a, as a co um, they put together, Live Nation put together a tour across the, the nation and, and in Canada. We played um, every, you know, major, like, basketball arena, like the United Center in Chicago sold out, the Rupp Arena in Kentucky sold out, uh, Red Rocks, uh, the Greek Theater in LA, you know, all these, all these great theaters and, and concert halls and stuff, and huge basketball arenas sold out to an acoustic concert. It was just, it was just nuts. So, um, Every once in a while, something with quality breaks through, like when, is, when the uh, Buena Vista Social Club was somewhat similar around that time. Yeah, and, uh, I, and, but I think that that was at the peak of the music business, and I would just, I would just add this little footnote. Uh, I'm very, at that time, people weren't streaming music. So I don't know even how you would qualify it as a, as a huge success if people were streaming. People had to actually go to the movie theater and pay to see the movie, and they would go two or three times to see it, take their friends. And then the, you couldn't walk out of Virgin Megastore with the record unless the, 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 the uh, alarm would go off if, they, if you tried to steal the record out of the store. You had to pay like 17, 18 bucks to get the album. So, and they sold, you know, beyond 10, 12 million or so, or so of those albums. So um, there was also kind of an interesting bridge in that music that kind of showed the, the sort of perseverance of the blues through all these different styles. So we had like the bluegrass where it's, you know, a relationship, it's harder to figure out. 
but then you've got things you know more country rock and tune like man of constant sorrow which ties in that rhythm element and then you got you know straight ahead delta old country blues style things um do, do they all have a common thread to you was that kind of material yeah well i used to on the tour you know i'd sit around with rap stanley we'd talk about these things you know uh but the what I know about early bluegrass and what I like, I, I write about Old Brother Warthow in my book. So there's a chapter in there where I spend some time going into details about how I got the role, you know, and 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 give my thoughts and you know and everything on the making of the movie and its effect on my career. So I, I deal with that in the book, but I also uh, spend some time talking about Ralph Peer and talking about how Jimmy Rogers and and the, and the early what we call today country music, how it started, you know, with these rural white players, you know, basically just playing the blues. And they would play them at, med at medicine shows, whatever, they might be even wear blacking themselves up. But Ralph Peer recorded Jimmy Rogers um, in upstate Tennessee in 1927 and kind of really captured that, that sound. And later, Jimmy Rogers, you can hear him playing the blues with, he recorded with, even when black and white musicians wasn't supposed to be playing together, him and Louis Armstrong did some recordings out in Los Angeles, you know, uh, around this time as well. So the roots of uh, what they call hillbilly music, it's really just, again, just like the Dixieland band, you know, was doing their version of a, of a black musical uh, invention. Uh, same thing with the rural people. They were playing um, their version of, you know, what they heard blacks playing. For some people, at least when this book was published, the idea is that the blues came from Mississippi, is what everybody believed. And my argument and the facts show that um, there's no black history in the Mississippi Delta because that was the place that the Chickasaw Nation and the Choctaw Nation lived. And they lived there for millennia until they were rooted out, out of there in the, night, in the 1840s or so. And but they never settled the land before the Civil War or built levees before the Civil War. And, um, and so black people didn't start um, making their way there until Dockery bought some land from a, from a railroad company in 1895. But it was another 10 years or so before he could entice um, black people from Alabama. And yeah, you didn't really want to live there. there because they knew it flooded. Yeah, so the first thing, after you buy this land for, penny, for, for pennies, really, then you got to clear the land. So you got to get all the cane breaks and all the trees and the timber. That's the next thing. Get all that timber out of there, put it on the trains and, and, and sell that. And then you got to try to build levees and you got to then start cultivating the land for cotton and things like this. So when we see Muddy Waters and we see these blues people in the 30s of Robert Johnson and stuff, picking their families, picking cotton in that era, that is, that's, believe me, that's downtrodden. You know what I mean? That's pretty, pretty rough living. Um, being a, a sharecropper, but uh, that shouldn't be confused with slavery. Has not, there were no blacks in the Mississippi Delta during antebellum time. There's no grave sites of black slaves that I know of. Right. Nobody yeah. was there. And but it, but but every year during Black History Month, 
people go around to, to the schools and tell all the little kids the blues came from the Delta and it came from slavery and work, and there was never no work songs there. It's a cultural swindle, uh, not only a swindle to reap the financial rewards from the blues, but also a cultural swindle to make sure that black people that originated this great musical art form, which is the greatest musical art form in, on the planet. At the, we live in the blues era. There might have been a classical era and a romantic era or the Baroque era. We've been living in the blues era since Jerry, Jelly Roll Martin published Jelly Roll Blues. And let me take that one step further. So you've seen my documentary. It's called Blues Rock Hits Soul Country. It's sort of the companion to the podcast. But I go right into the heart of that issue, how out of the top 20 best-selling acts of all time, about 15 or more of them have paid a serious blues or rhythm and blues apprenticeship. That was the raw material that led to even the most popular. My, I would go even a step farther. There is no uh, popular music in America that I know of that isn't blues. There's no other music. I mean, C on a piano is C on a piano. So if you're playing a C scale, a pentatonic, if you're playing a 4-4 four, four beat, it's, I mean, the only difference is the marketing. And the marketing terms you have to understand, are basically, um, you know, Jim Crow terms, meaning that even though these two people were singing the exact same song, you got the Beatles singing this tune, and you have Chuck Berry singing, or you have Little Richard singing, or Fast Domino singing, or whoever, uh, or Lonnie Johnson singing it. But then just because a person's skin is white and and, and everything is segregated in America, they're playing the same notes, singing the exact same words, the same rhythm and everything. It's just a cover song. But now it's, it, they got to label it differently. My book is a culture. It's, it's called The Authentic Narrative of My Music and Culture. So blues is a cultural expression. And it's gonna, it was here before the music business arrived, and it'll be here after the record business is long gone and buried. These are all the same notes that everybody is playing. And this is why I think that when you... If, you, if a person leaves my book with something, they'll leave with the blues as a musical philosophy. And nobody writes about the blues as a philosophy, meaning that I can take the national anthem and blue it. I can, I can make it subversive just by the way that I approach it. You know, like, like Jimi Hendrix doing the national anthem, he took it in and blew it, and people were outraged. You know, that's not respectable. But the man was a soldier. You know, he, he mm-hmm. fought for his, his country, and it's a free country, right? So I mean, uh, you can take any particular piece, any kind of music, and blew it. It's a, it's in other words, and creolize it. In other words, make it your own. Use it as your cultural expression. And this is not. Uh, I'm not saying that this is owned by um, Black Louisianians or Black people in general. I'm saying that if you are in South Korea, and you want to take rhythm and blues or take the blues music, you can sing your own language to it. You can take it and adapt it and make your own thing with it. You know, the Beatles might have started off as emulators and copying, but they became a very original band through their progression. And so they were singing about their culture, you know, toward the end. We're here for, for, for a jazz fest. Whether or not the brass bands that you hear on the streets of New Orleans or the second line, whether their music sell and hit number one on the chart, I don't think they really... It's not about that, yeah. This is a cultural expression. It's part of your life. Right. So, I mean, they're not even... That's that's not even the reason that they pick up their horns and trombones and play. 
and play the music. So, and say if Elvis Costello, you know, here's a brass band thing and he decides to write a tune to it. Or what's the guy, Paul Simon, like he did in South Africa. You know, if you want to take this music and, and create and make a hit record with it, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But don't come back to New Orleans and start telling the brass bands, y'all got to play y'all music like Elvis Costello or Paul Simon, or y'all playing it wrong. Y'all doing this second line all wrong. It's like our music, the blues is a cultural expression, and it's a, it's a musical philosophy that says we don't want to be, we don't, and we're not going to, we're going to, we're proud of our culture, and we don't want to uh, fully embrace uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, evangelical. They're just you know a bunch I mean? of prudes who can't have fun. Yeah, we like how we do it. So we, so if, if you want us to, to sing your Christian song, we'll sing your Christian song. We'll sing when the saints go marching in, but we're going to do it. We're going to creolize it. We're going to put our style into it. We're going to make it where we can dance and make it, you know, adapted for our culture. And that's really all the blues is. Something like popular perception got influenced by the popularity of rock and roll that pulled from Delta and Robert Johnson. There's not too many people like that, that they're so popular when they weren't really known at the time, but then afterwards. But I'm glad you brought up Robert Johnson because nobody had heard of Robert Johnson or knew anything about Robert Johnson, really. Uh, And he wasn't seen as this genius guitar player um, uh, when he was alive. Uh, He was seen as a good player for people that heard him, but... You had Leroy Carr. You had so many other different guitar players um, that were amazing and doing the same thing. And he was an imitative artist. A lot of songs he was doing, he didn't write those songs. They were songs that he heard on record. And that's very important because these 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 pseudo-folklorists like the Alan Lomaxes and, and people like that who are not folk, I wouldn't call them folklorists, especially when it comes to African-American folk culture because they never consulted with any black uh, African. They never went to Africa and, and talked to the African professors and people who would know. They made a false equivalency with the Delta and with uh, Appalachia and tried to enforce and force onto black people what they wanted our folk culture to be. So in other words, they want to make you think that the black person in the Delta, is the, he's hearing harmony for the first time and these complex chords and rhythms for the first time, and then he got a diddly bow. He, he tied one piece of fishing twine to the tree and another piece of twine to another board, and he started making a sound. And they want to make it like that's the origins or the beginning of black civilization or black high art music and culture. And nothing can be further from the truth because in my book, I lay out the fact that harmony was invented, was invented by Africans. The trumpet uh, is an African instrument that is um, found in ancient Egypt. Yeah. The one trumpet is, 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 is in the Kia C 4,000 years ago, and the other one is in the Kia B. This is not somebody just taking a moose horn and blowing through it. This is like precisely, you know, high art, you know, harmony. They, they already knew, I want this in the Kia C. I want this one in the Kia B. These are going to be in harmony together. That's, that's 4,000 years ago. And so you know that that knowledge was there earlier than that. This is like, so anyway, I'm just saying that people try to create a situation to give the impression that black musicians heard white musicians playing the clarinet and the trumpet, and then we discovered (laughs) harmony, you know, and and, and, and melodies and things. And it's just ignorant, and it's not true. 
And it's, it's part of that eugenic story of trying to deny uh, black history now, uh, 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 authentic black history. And the, the other thing I need to um, say, there's two things I want to do. There is uh, this book here that, uh, <laughs> this book is called Urban Blues. And this book was published in 1966. And in 1966, B.B. King was not considered an authentic blues musician. Now, he, was, he was, had some success. Him and Bobby Bland, and who else is in here that they feature? Jimmy Weatherspoon, B.B. King, Bobby Blue Bland, and Ray Charles. But these people, these folk, these people I call the Blues Mafia in my book, these people rejected B.B. King because we never seen B.B. King, with, even though he said he worked and plowed a field, We've never seen B.B. King with overalls and, a, and an acoustic guitar. So he didn't uh, countryfy, even though he's from the Mississippi Delta. This was, this was in the folk music time frame, right? Where they this wanted is, to make everybody folk? This is, yeah, this is the 1960s when they ran Bob Dylan out of, out of folk music, you know, for going electric. The blues was seen as uh, you could be playing a trumpet like Louis Armstrong. You could be singing and playing the blues like Lonnie Johnson. You could be playing the blues like, like Joe Turner. You know, it's jump blues. It's all kind. Of, blues is coming in at you in every kind of way, and nobody is is arguing whether it's blues or not because it was just race music, and nobody really cared to give it these. De- and the genres are kind of made up anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. a bunch of. It was just all race verbiage. music, no matter what you was doing up until about 1948, and so um, by the 1960s, you know, you get these people trying to um, separate blues from rock and roll. In other words, rock and roll is where we're going to make this money. Rock and roll is where we're going to get. You know, we're going to turn this thing into a multi-billion dollar industry. And yeah, they are playing black music, but somehow we're going to shape the public's uh, perception of the black performers and make them think that they're doing, that they're, they're doing something else. And so, uh, and B.B. King at this time had no white audience. White people wasn't following him around and going to his concerts. And he was frustrated by that. But... Um, but the acoustic guitar players like Mississippi John Hurt, uh, Sunhouse, and stuff was making it on the folk festivals. And, and like I said, these folk festivals are all near Harvard. And that's, you got to remember, that's the epicenter of racial science in America. And so here was, this is the, the reason I, I want to read from this book, because this is his definition of what they're looking for in blues in 1966. And B.B. King did not fit it, even though we think of, we revere B.B. King now. Yeah, he seems like Mr. Blues. Yeah. <laughs> but he couldn't get booked on these folk festivals, on these blues festivals in the 60s. He wouldn't have been invited. So I'm going to quote from here. The criteria for a real blues singer, implicit or explicit, are the following. Old age, the performance should perfectly be more than 60 years old, blind, arthritic, and toothless. And he has a quote, as Lonnie Johnson put it, when first approached for an interview, are you another one of those guys who wants to put crutches under my ass? Um, Then the other criteria is obscurity. The blues singer should not have performed in public or have made a recording in at least 20 years. Among deceased bluesmen, the best seem to be those who appeared in a big city one day in the 1920s, made from four to six recordings and then disappeared into the countryside forever. Correct tutelage. The singer should have played with or been taught by some legendary figure, agrarian milieu, countryfied. Um, a bluesman should have lived, 
the bulk of his life as a sharecropper, coaxing mules and picking cotton, uh, uncontaminated by city influence. Now, that's the definition of blues in 1966. And if you didn't fit that definition, uh, then you weren't part of this whole blues canon that these record collectors and these blues mafia types were uh, erecting. And I'll just add that Lonnie Johnson, who is the father of blues guitar, was eliminated from this criteria. He didn't want to uh, play into these people's uh, idea of what the blues should be. Because, hell, he, he originated, he was already... You know, everybody was, he was emulating. like four or five decades in. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. It's like you know, and 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 here's the thing: they said that the criteria should be for for an authentic folk performer is that you know you learn on oral history. You know, you learn it from your parents, or you you don't learn the music in a conservatory or sheet music and things like this. Well, Lonnie Johnson played with his family on the streets in New Orleans. He didn't learn it in some kind of musical school, or anything. And he didn't learn it from phonograph records because there weren't any, weren't any when he was. Starting out, on the other hand, Muddy Waters told Alan Lomax, I learned all these songs from the jukebox. I learned all these songs from my record collection. Robert Johnson learned all his blues recordings and things like that, emulating records. B.B. King, who we all revere as an authentic blues performer, I don't think anybody had a bigger record collection than B.B. King. I mean, he was a DJ for, for, for early in his life in Memphis, but this man, record collection, he donated it to the University of Mississippi. I mean, his record collection was in the hundreds, maybe hundreds some thousands of, of records. He stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, in other words, the Jelly Roll Martin, Lonnie Johnson, King Oliver, these early blues performers out of New Orleans, they didn't learn from records. They learned from hearing it on the street or hearing it in person. They are, if, if you're going to go by, by a folk criteria of oral passing on a culture orally, if that's your criteria, it still brings you to New Orleans. It don't take you to Mississippi because Mississippi learned the blues from phonograph records. I'm not here to rag on Mississippi. And, uh, you know, I was on the board of, 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 of advisors to create the B.B. King Blues Museum. And when we... We would go. I would go into Mississippi and Itabina in his hometown before we built the. Uh, when, and I say we, before we built BB um, King's Blues Museum, and we would ride around and kind of say, okay, this is the farm where he was at a child, and the barn was still there that he had worked at and drove drove a tractor, and we would people would come in and do interviews and and tell us stories and stuff, his old classmates or people that knew him as a child. So in other words. I've done movies. I've done down, uh, last of the Mississippi Jukes. I've done so many documentaries on the Delta and on Mississippi blues. I've done so many things to promote Mississippi culture. But uh, the movies that I played, at least the movie Old Brother Warthouse, is fictional. So it's not a true story uh, of the Delta, but it's, it's playing with popular myths. So, yeah, I was playing Tommy Johnson, but Tommy Johnson wasn't the guy at the crossroads, and so that's supposed to be Robert Johnson. So none of it should be taken too seriously when it comes to a fictional movie. That's just having fun in a spoof. But some of these documentaries that I've been a part of, I have sit down like I'm sitting with you, and I have told people some of these things. Now, I'm not saying that 
20 years ago or 30 years ago as a teenager, I knew everything there is to know about blues. No, I did believe that I um, was part of a continuum here in Louisiana with my father, Rockin' Tabby Thomas. I grew up in a jig joint, you know, playing the blues. That was a family business for 25 years. So I think I know a little something about a Friday or Saturday night in a jig joint. That's what I had to do for a living from, uh, from uh, I've been doing this since I was 11 years old professionally. So, and, I, and, and when, when I was writing my book, I went to Africa and, and had these conversations in West Africa, uh, researching the blues and did the blues come from there and all this stuff here. And they told me, they laughed at me and told me, you know, you need to stop promoting that myth. So, um, so I'm saying all that to say that I've done a lot to promote uh, Mississippi uh, culture, and they've made some money with things that I have done. But, uh, but here on out, my focus is not to dismiss uh, Mississippi, but to embrace uh, my uh, culture here in Louisiana. I'm from Louisiana, and I think that the Louisiana musician, blues musicians, get shortchanged. I mean... And we, a lot of times, we don't even get included when they talk about blues. We're out of sight, out of mind. It's like we're not even part of the South. It's like we're not even part of the whole story of the blues. How can you talk about the blues and talk about the South and never mention any New Orleans how much do you, How much of that do you feel like is the fault of Louisiana, the state, for not getting behind it in quite the same way that Mississippi did? Because they've got their blues highway and they've got so many museums. Yeah, I mean, there's a plague on, on, on the state of Louisiana for not... They... Uh, they dismissed ownership of the blues and offering the blues, made an orphanage of the blues um, many, many years ago. But I think the origin story is so important just to get that straight because we need, we, you know, because we need young musicians that's going to come up and play this music. You want to reach young people and have them be attracted to this music. But if you um, tell them they can only play these three cards, if you play that fourth chord, no, that's not the blues. You only got If you give these people these false... And this, it's not like if you give them these false um, boxes and you try to put them in these boxes, well, they're going to say, well, I don't like the blues. When that's not what the blues is anyway. I was discovered by a folklorist, uh, you know, in 1979. So I'm the last, uh, you know, uh, blues musician to come to prominence. Being like Muddy Waters was discovered by a folklorist from the Library of Congress. Uh, and so many other people. Jelly Roll Martin, you know, made those famous recordings for the Library of Congress. My first album is at the Library of Congress. So I came into the picture as this primitive, supposedly primitive, illiterate, you know, um, blues musician who learned from his father in a juke joint. And this was on our Hooli? Was the our Hooli <laughs> my, record? My first album came out on our Hooli, which is the preeminent, you know, folk label, Chris Strackwich, thank you very much. And um, this... Uh, this, this was my beginning. And so for me to come and write this book and, uh, and to kind of, you know, it's kind of like the, the lion, you know, telling his story or, the, or whatever, you know what I mean? It's like I'm the last one that came out of this whole thing. I didn't know it was a eugenic thing that, I, that, that brought me into the world. I was looking to go to fucking Soul Train, you know. I was trying to make a record to get, you know, to have a hit record or something. I didn't know that I was supposed to be, you know, this... Um, illiterate, you know, 
And that gets back into Whatever. like your your origins. So you got Baton Rouge. Your father's a bluesman. You grew up at the blues juke joint club. Yeah. And so when when old brother came out to try to answer your question, when old brother came out, uh, I had no idea it was going to be a success. But it it, it 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 superseded anything that Lead Belly had done. Anything that any other folk blues musician that had been discovered by folklorists and can't, and brought to the attention of the world like I had been. It, 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 it exceeded, you know, commercial expectations uh, and just shattered what anybody had imagined, you know. And happened. it had a lot of everybody's blues in there. So from the, the prison song, the work songs, the, the uh, bluegrass, gospel, I mean, that's all in there. The New Orleans music is the original blues that came out here. And then what we find in the Delta with the with Mississippi John Hurt and people like that, they are just emulating what Lonnie Johnson, Lonnie Johnson took what, what Louis Armstrong and these people were doing uh, and what Jelly Roll was doing on the piano, he he transposed that to the to the guitar, and then uh, the rural people in Oklahoma and Tennessee and all over the South heard Lonnie Johnson records, and and from 1925 onward, and began to try to emulate that sound and the way he sang and played the guitar, and that's how we got this Delta blues. It's like a derivative mm-hmm. of. Okay, so another okay. time you got into the Delta uh, frame of mind to be an actor was with Wim Wenders, one of Germany's cinematic greats. I was a film student, so I like to talk about these things. What was it like working with, with Wim Wenders? I don't remember working with Wim Wenders very much. Um, it was Martin it's, Scorsese, it, it's apparent. It I mean, I remember the project, exactly. But if you ask me to talk to you about Wim, uh, I remember going to his house out in, uh, in Hollywood, in the Hollywood Hills, interviewing with him. Uh, he had been successful from um, Venevisa Social Club with a musical documentary. And so he was making this documentary and wanted me to play um, Blind Willie Johnson. And I had just filmed Old Brother. I don't know if Old Brother had come out yet or not. But maybe it had come out. I don't know. I mean, maybe, I think I was in between that and the Ray movie, you know. But anyway, I was in Hollywood, you know, all kinds of projects was coming my way. And I decided I'd do that with Dick. I think it may be uh, the one person who might have benefited from it was Bobby Rush, I think. Yeah, he looked good. He he took him to the church the next day. Remember, they said he has, I got. Yeah, I think I think stuff. Bobby Rush. It, it gave him a, um, a, a leg up. You know, maybe introduce some people to him. He was in episode two, so we'll all know about him. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about this one: the country blues guys of the twenties, thirties, forties, who brought the guitar work in and and the songwriting. By the mid twenties to the late twenties, the whole nation was aware of the blues, and the whole nation was this was this was popular music. It was like the rap music of its day. You know, it was. It was popular music from coast to coast. Um, and it's what everybody wanted to hear and, and whatever, what, what most musicians wanted to play. The sharecropping musicians, you know, on the, like in the Mississippi Delta, those musicians, they weren't professional musicians. A lot of them were dilettante musicians. They could hardly take a solo or anything. And people have sat around and tried to tell me that um, George Benson is not a, as good a guitar player as Charlie Patton. Or somehow Ray Charles is just not as good a blues singer as... I mean, what, what are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. This is nuts. And you can't, you can't reason or rationalize it other than what they're doing is the old switcheroo where it's a cultural swindle. They're trying to um, present to the world that this is authentic African-American, so ignore those geniuses. Ignore Louis Armstrong. Ignore these other people over here and focus on... Mm-hmm. This primitive guy. So, like, also we talked about, like, the last century of actual time here, back to 1922, there was the enormous popularity of Jimmy Rogers. He was a kind of a blues uh, knowledgeable guy who was a railroad guy. 
and I heard the songs. Hank Williams was similar, had the black teacher. All the kingpins of country music were parlaying the engine of blues uh, through country, or it didn't even call it country. It's called it music back then, I think. Yeah, because there's no such thing as country music. It's just blues. Yeah, it's still blues-related, yeah. And so um, then popular. I'm going to keep moving here, popularization of blues in some form went well into the blues rock era in the mid-'70s. That's when we both grew up. Uh, the Led Zeppelin and Cream and, and Stones and all that stuff was heavily blues. And I think in your book you refer to it as low down and dirty. Were you a rock fan back then? I guess that's my question. Not a rock fan, uh, but I I just liked the guitar, and I liked loud guitars. Uncle Don Washington uh, would take me to his home and give me, he was a trumpet player, and he would give me uh, trumpet lessons. And I had a little cornet that he bought in Korea when he was in the war, and he came back and gave it to me and, and brought me to his house, and I learned how to play scales and the trumpet and stuff, learned how to play the cornet through him. And um, so I was going to be, I was set on being a, a trumpet player like my uncle. And But this was also at the time that the guitar would be, the dominant instrument in the blues. And so, you know, um, my dad kind of said, if you want to lead a band, you, instead of playing the trumpet, you might want to play the guitar because the, the guitar had superseded the trumpet. And that's interesting because Miles Davis uh, tried to compete with the guitar and tried to continue to make the trumpet the, the main instrument of the blues. He tried to play it through an electric amp, through wah-wah pedals. He tried everything, all kinds of echo and all kinds of experimentation. But the trumpet just is not going to, it just wasn't going to be an electric instrument. The harmonica, however, worked good through, an amp, through amplification. You know, uh, Little Walter, you know, proved that. It sounds fantastic on record, but a trumpet through electronic gadgets just didn't work. The main thing you could do with it, the wah-wah and the mute, he innovated those things. And uh, I would say even, um, but that goes back to... Um, to um, Papa Joe, you know, um, King Oliver, you know, that, that's, that's the kind of stuff that he was doing, that he innovated or originated. But, um, but the, the trumpet was, was uh, becoming lesser and, and going to the background, and the guitar was louder, more, more able to cut through the audience, more able to reach a larger audience, and it became the emblem of the blues, and so I, I gravitated toward the guitar. What advice do you have for a young musician who's trying to succeed in the business? <laughs> oh, man. I don't really... Uh, my first instinct is to tell them, uh, don't do it. <laughs> uh, the second thing I would just tell them is, you know, try to, try to be true to yourself and don't, don't take shortcuts with your talent. All right, good. Solid answers. Good for life, even, you know. Uh, tell me about your next tour, or your next show's upcoming. Anything big coming up for you? Um, I don't have a big announcement. Uh, I'm just going to continue. Now that COVID is kind of behind us, I'm going to try to get out here and tell people about this book and, uh, and tell this story and try to shift the nation's attention from the Mississippi Delta to New Orleans when they think of the blues. I, I want people to, I want when people think of Delta blues or think of the blues period, I want them to think New Orleans first and everything else second because that's the way it should be. If you could get a ticket to see any artist of all time play, who would it be? Honestly, I don't like live music. 
Oh, really? Is that okay? I mean, I'm not, I, I, I don't hate it, but the record you know, is what drew me into the, the music business. And I don't, I don't, um, I don't, I, you know, I'm just not a, I don't need to see them perform it. So, but listen, but I, I will say they might find interesting that what was, what pulled me in was the sound of the room. It wasn't the guitar and the bass and the drum. It was the, it was the spaces in between when I can hear the room. It just sounded like something was, something exciting was happening in the room. And I, I wanted to be in the room. I wanted to be there when this excitement was happening. You know what I mean? So you can kind of hear when the band say, boom, and then they stop. And then you can kind of hear the little the echo and stuff in, in, in some of these earlier records. Not 20s. And I'm not talking to, I'm talking 60s and 70s, 80s, you know. But now the, the room is, is, um, is sampled. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a real room. You know, whereas you, you, you hear hit the road, Jack, or you hear some, you know, you, you hear some good yeah, the old crack R&B. of a snare is yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. it's like the, that, that, that rum is authentic, and, you, and it tells you a lot about the excitement and the space and the fun everybody was having. And I just wanted to be in that atmosphere. Now I'm thinking about Cosmos at the laundromat. Cosmos, yeah, man. Cos- yeah. We haven't talked about that, but that's, that's so important Example to the blues to, story. Yeah. The, the sound of the records is what drew me into um, wanting to make records of my own. And if I don't perform, you know, but a few concerts a year, I'm okay with that. And then you're writing enough to fill up your whole plate as producer. You don't ever go produce other artists? Uh, they don't ask me. Okay, just checking, just checking. <laughs> but right, I, so. but I, I'm, I'm open to that. Thank you, Chris Thomas King, for venturing into Soul Country and a special taping in New Orleans, Uptown. Truly one of the Crescent City's great music rooms. Chris Thomas King, we've got the blues, the authentic narrative of my music and culture. It's just come out in hardback. Yeah, uh, so the book is available uh, it's audio, it's an audio book. It's uh, a hard copy book. It's uh, it's it's actually out on uh, CD as well, and it's electronic. And so you can you can purchase it at Amazon anywhere in the world. And if you want an autographed copy, you can get that from uh, my website, ChrisThomasKing.com. And I want to say a special thanks to Reed Mathis for our title track, We Ride. Tune in again to Soul Country for more insight into the music, culture, and lore of Roots Music. All right, Chris, thanks again for coming by Soul Country. My pleasure. Woo, way, way.